Augustine, born in 354 AD and lived a life of debauchery until he came to faith in Christ at the age of 31. Incredible story captured in his autobiography entitled Confessions. So he's wrestling with sin each and every day, which he describes in great detail, including stealing pears, not because he needs them, but simply for the thrill of stealing and sexual immorality that enslaved him. He says, and I quote, I was burning to find satisfaction in hellish pleasures, running wild in the shadowy jungle of erotic pleasures. My feasting was on the wickedness which I took pleasure in enjoying. Until one day he feels compelled to open his Bible and to read wherever his eyes come across, which he does. And what does he read? Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, which says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So he repents, he believes, and he's totally sold out for Christ, gives away his wealth, converts his house to a monastery, and studies the Bible with like-minded Christians until in 391 AD, he becomes the Bishop of Hippo and is used by God for the next 39 years of his life as a pastor, teacher, theologian, and as an author. In fact, one of his most influential books is called The City of God, which was written in response to the sacking of Rome in 410 AD, which was a major event. Because up to that point, the Roman Empire dominated European civilization for the last thousand years. So when the barbarians plundered Rome, it was the first time in 800 years that their walls had been breached. And as a result, citizens were devastated and started making accusations that the gods were punishing them for abandoning their paganism in favor of the new state religion, Christianity. So Augustine argues in the city of God that Christianity is not the problem but instead the sinfulness of man. Because religion is not found in loving the world or the things in the world or in temporal cities like Rome. Instead, what matters most is the city of God, which Augustine argues is the church, both now in our earthly gatherings and our love for one another and forever in our blessed hope of heaven where Jesus will rule and reign over all empires, including Rome, which is where Titus chapter 3 comes in, because God saved us by his grace, freeing us from our bondage to sin and empowering us to live for his glory, honor, and praise. But that means our lives must demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel in our actions, our speech, our attitudes, and our good works toward all mankind. So good works in the world, including the way we submit to rulers and authorities and the way we're absolutely committed to doing every good work that we can possibly do in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our communities. So the city of God, namely the church, being gloriously different than the city of man. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, 
encourage you to grab my outline from your bulletin, have your Bible open to Titus chapter 3, title, my sermon this morning, Good Works in the World, three points, reminder of good works, reason for good works, resolved for good works. Titus chapter 3, follow along as I read the first seven verses. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As we jump in, remember that Paul's writing to Titus for the specific purpose of putting what remains in order in the church in Crete, including chapter 1, godliness in your leaders as opposed to the Cretans who are liars, evil beasts, lazy guttons who profess to know God but deny him by their works. Then chapter 2, put what remains in order with regard to godliness in the church. So older men and women, younger men and women, and even Titus, why? Chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right now, waiting for our blessed hope. So people who are zealous for good works in the church, but not just in the church, but in the world. So chapter 3 is all about good works In the world, which is why Paul says, verse 1, remind them, the people in the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So be clear, he's talking about godliness in our communities, because rulers and authorities are not necessarily Christians. And showing perfect courtesy toward all people is much bigger than the church. So we're talking about good works in the world. That includes being above reproach in our actions, our speech, and our attitudes. Verse 1, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Consider the context. Because no doubt the Cretans didn't like being ruled by Rome. In addition, there were Jewish settlers who had a history of uprising against the Roman authorities. But the church is being called and commanded to be subject to their rulers and authorities. Even if they're pagan unbelievers and even if they persecute you to the point of death, even if you've done nothing wrong. And of course, this is a reminder. Why is it a reminder? Well, because we have a tendency to get frustrated and rebel against our rulers and authorities. I mean, just look at the world in which we live. 
We're railing against the government is a daily reality. So openly disrespecting President Biden is the norm. Christians should be radically different. Should honor, respect, and pray for the governing authorities. But why? Why honor those who dishonor our God? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 13, Let every person be subject to their governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, what God has ordained. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to God, but to bad conduct. So if you want no fear regarding the governing authorities, then do what is good. So rebelling against the governing authorities is the same as rebelling against God because God put them in place to enforce laws, maintain order, and to punish evil. So what should we do? Well, we should give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We should pay taxes. We should obey the law. Paul is crystal clear, Romans 13, 2, that those who resist what God has appointed will bring judgment on themselves. Well, now, what if they make us do something wrong or something evil or forbid us from proclaiming the good news of the gospel? Well, Acts 5.29 says that in that case, we must obey God rather than men. So there's obviously a limit to their authority. But even in situations like that, we can respectfully disobey and peacefully protest and still be ready for every good work. I mean, take the Apostle Paul, for example. When he was arrested as a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar. Why did he appeal to Caesar? Because he was following the law. Also, so that he could share the good news of the gospel with every single ruler and authority. And he considered it a blessing to share even with the guards while he was in chains. So, A, we must be above reproach with regard to our actions joyfully submitting to our rulers and authorities, being obedient and ready for every good work. But it's not just our actions, but also be being above reproach with regard to our speech. Verse 2, Paul says, remind them to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling. So it's not just actions, but our words. And notice how universal the language is. You are to speak evil of no one. So not to no one, but of no one. So we're not to be slandering anyone's reputation or speaking evil behind their backs. Let me just ask, how's that going for you? Especially during our presidential election. Let's just put that in the context. How's your speech with regard to our governing authorities? What do you say about Joe Biden or Donald Trump when it comes up between you and your friends and you're free to let loose and share what your opinion is? What about the other authorities in your life? What do you say about your boss? What do you say about your parents? What do you say about your coworkers behind their backs? Or in general, what words come out of your mouth when a guy cuts you off on the road? Nobody else is in the car. Let loose. 
Verse 2 says you are to speak evil of no one. And it also says you are to avoid quarreling. How's that going? Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. We are to be peacemakers. Are you avoiding fights? Or are you being passive-aggressive? Stirring up disagreements, purposely asking hot-button questions just to stir up debate, just to try to get a rise out of people. Fighting with siblings, speaking evil of co-workers, causing all sorts of dissension. You know, if you step back and you think about it, Paul's essentially saying, if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. But somehow in our society, that only applies to kids in kindergarten and below. Paul's saying, I don't think so. Instead, the church should be gloriously different in our actions and in our speech. But it's not just about outward appearance coming across that way, but also internally with our attitudes. So we're not to be hypocrites. Paul says, remind them to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Again, notice the universal language. We are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. You see how that's an attitude issue. So in two short verses, he's talking about our actions, our speech, and our attitudes. It's no different than what Paul says in Philippians 2, that we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But in humility of mind to count others as more important than ourselves. Looking out always and forever in perfect courtesy and consistent kindness for the interests of all people. Two questions before we move on. Number one, do you see how gloriously different we're called to be as a church? I mean, if we could consistently demonstrate in each of our lives godly action, speech, and attitudes towards all mankind, how beautiful would that be to a watching world? How attractive to the other people in our families? How compelling to our coworkers? How stunning to our fellow students? I mean, what would that be like if you were gentle and kind and showed perfect courtesy towards every single person that you ever came into contact with? How gloriously different would that be to the people in in our community? Because that's not the world in which we live, is it? People aren't submitting to authorities. They're not following rules. We live in a day and age where people are proud to be anti-authoritarian, railing against the government, slandering anyone and everyone who says anything that they don't like or appreciate. How do they handle disagreements? Well, let's just say they don't show perfect courtesy, do they? Instead, they post it on Facebook. They unfriend people. They ruin reputations. They gossip, slander, and send flamers as email and turn around and call it therapeutic in order to justify their behavior. We live in a cancel culture. So the contrast between us and them should be evident and obvious. And the contrast must be that we're gloriously different. 
So Christians should not be using social media in order to sling mud at one another. In that case, my question would be, are we influencing the world or is the world influencing us? Let me put it this way. The false teachers in Crete professed to know God, but they denied him by their works. Well, we as Christians should profess to know God and we should prove it by our works. With lives that confirm, or as Paul says, adorn our profession of faith. Lives that are gloriously different. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Do you hear the contrast? Blameless versus crooked. Innocent versus twisted. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I started with Augustine. Because that's what he was arguing for in his book, The City of God. Because the city of God, even on earth, through the church, should be radically different than the city of man. Because one is marked by love and kindness, good works and gentleness, whereas the city of man is selfish and is self-contumed, which only leads to darkness, death, and destruction. So verses 1 and 2 are a glorious reminder that we must be a people zealous for good works, not only inside the church, but in our communities, because the world is watching. So question number one, do you see how gloriously different the church should be? Now question number two, how in the world do we do that? How do we accomplish all of these good works towards all mankind? Well, Paul answers that question in verses 3 to 7. What I'm calling number two, reason for good works. So the reminder of good works, now the reason for good works. Notice how it begins, verse 3. For or because we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. Obviously, that's not a very flattering description. Why does Paul start there? One reason. Humility. How could we ever submit to rulers and authority, being obedient and ready for every good work, if we think we're somehow better than everyone else? How could we speak evil of no one and show perfect courtesy towards all people if we think everyone else is an idiot who just needs to be as smart as we are to figure out that Christianity, true faith in Christ, has all the answers to living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age? That would never work. Instead, A, we need to remember our past. Verse 3 is a perfect description of every single one of us before coming to Christ. Because we all started out living for the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I, as Augustine says, in the city of man, ruled by self-love self-lust, and self-interest because we are selfish people. 
Or as Paul says, foolish and disobedient and ignorant of the reality that God created us and that God sustains us and therefore is worthy of all of our worship, praise, and adoration. So step one is remember your past. You have to remember your past. Not so that you can relive the guilt and the shame, but because it brings humility to your heart. And it brings this unquenchable joy and this insatiable motivation as you remember where it is that you come from. And you delight in the reality of what God has done specifically to bring you out of the depths of sin and misery to the mountaintops of your salvation. Oh, beloved, just pause for a moment and contemplate who you were. Think back to the things that you used to say, the way you used to act, the speech that would come out of your mouth as a result of the attitudes in your heart. Remember your past. So that be, you might delight in your salvation. You know, one commentator says it this way. He says, these things, malice, envy, and hatred, make this world a dark and destructive place. In fact, they lead to death and despair. And yet... Despite all of our advancements in science, in technology, and in education, the problem is still not solved. The world is still groaning in malice, envy, and hatred. But praise God, hope has arrived. As Isaiah says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice how God is sent central to every single action that is listed in those verses. It's God's goodness, God's loving kindness, God's mercy, and God who saves us. Through God's work of regeneration, God's renewal through the Holy Spirit being poured on us richly, through God's Son and God's glorious work of redemption. It's wonderfully clear, isn't it? In case you're confused this morning, That you didn't save yourself. No. You were enslaved to passions and pleasures. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Newsflash. Dead people don't make themselves alive. That's because they're dead. Which means that we can't concoct some sort of potion in order to make ourselves alive. No. Only God can do that. Verse 5, God saved us. 
Salvation is a miraculous work that only God can do. And we're given all the wonderful details. So when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, talking about the first coming of Christ, when he took on flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only son. So God's grace appeared in God's son, the God-man, who lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again on the third day, conquering sin, death, and the devil, and appeared to over 500 people, which confirms the reality of his resurrection. Do you understand? All of that was absolutely necessary so that God could save us. All of that necessary so that God could save you, redeem you, buy you back, purchase you to be a person of his own possession. So when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. That's a reminder of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, our Savior. He saved us. We're dead. He makes us alive. Oh, I pray that we would never get over the glory of that reality. That we were dead and he made us alive. That we were lost and he found us. That he pursued us. That he saved us. That Jesus Christ appeared for our salvation so that we might become the people of God. And how was that accomplished? Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We don't earn our way to heaven. We only go to heaven because God was merciful through the work of God's Spirit. What's the purpose of this salvation? Verse 7, so that being justified by grace, God's grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, do you understand that's the whole point of salvation? That we might become the children of God, heirs to his kingdom, who have this eternal, never-ending, never-to-be-taken-or-shaken hope of eternal life. So dwelling in God's presence for all eternity, where there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You know, I really don't think that we think enough about heaven. I don't think we do. I think we're so consumed with the here and now, that we don't think about heaven as much as we should. Because that's the end goal, isn't it? Future glory. Eternal life. Our life here is but a vapor. Here for a short time and then gone. There eternal life. This future glory, this eternal inheritance. You know, I love the way that Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again. Again, we didn't make ourselves alive. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through a living Savior. Listen to this. End goal, to an inheritance 
that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. So this eternal inheritance, this future glory is imperishable, not subject to decay, will never wear out. It's undefiled, not polluted by sin or unholy in any way, and it's unfading. So it's not like the things of earth that wither and fade and lose their beauty. No, our future glory is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So it will always be beautiful, and it will always be glorious. It'll be the most glorious thing that you've ever seen. And Peter says it's reserved in heaven for you. So it's not going anywhere. Instead, it will always be there waiting specifically for you. No one can take it. No one can steal it. No one can destroy it. Do you see how fantastic our future glory will be? You know, if you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Christ, then I want you to look again at verse 5. Jesus came for one reason, to save sinners, which is exactly what we are if we stand outside of Christ. We're foolish, disobedient, and slain the various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But God's grace is being offered to you right now so that you might not experience eternal destruction, but that you might be an heir according to the hope of eternal life, looking forward and longing for this future glory. Let me just ask you, don't you want to be a person who smiles at the future? Apart from Christ, there's only death and destruction. But by owning your sin and delighting yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and his payment for your sin, you can dwell in his presence for all eternity. The glory of this future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. I plead with you to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith because God's offering you eternal life right now in the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of this future glory that's so certain it's enabled to invade this present reality and empower you in this present day to live for his glory, his honor, and his praise. I appeal to you. Grab a hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make this future glory your present inheritance that you can live in light of it every single day of your life and look forward to it. The time where you will be with him for all eternity. Otherwise, it's death and destruction. The contrast is so evident. Death and destruction, eternal life. You sit here this morning and you say, yeah, I'll take death and destruction. That highlights the hardness and the foolishness of your own heart. Eternal life. Offered to you this morning in Titus chapter 3. That's number two, the reason for good works. Now number three, resolve to good works. To transition, I want to remind you that Augustine said, 
I was burning to find satisfaction in hellish pleasures, feasting on the wickedness I took pleasure in enjoying until one day he opened the Bible and he read Romans 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousies, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. He repents, he believes, and he's sold out for Christ. Or you could say, you could easily say this of Augustine. He lives his life remembering his past, delighting in his salvation, and rejoicing in his future glory. And as a result, he gives away all of his wealth, converts his house to a monastery, and studies the Bible until he becomes the Bishop of Hippo and is used by God for the rest of his life to declare the good news of the gospel, defend it against false teacher, and to do his best, his very best, to live it out even while Rome is literally falling around him. Which is exactly what Paul declares in verses 8 to 15. Follow along as I read Titus chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So A, declare the good news of the gospel. Paul says, insist on these things. What exactly must we insist on? Well, I would suggest we insist on the good news of the gospel being a miraculous work of God's grace from start to finish. So the reality that God saved us and God is transforming us and God promises that he will take us all the way home to glory. It must be a gospel of grace, of undeserved kindness, which means our lives must be transformed if God is really at work within us. Titus 1.1. Hear the repetition of this idea, the things that we have to insist on. Titus 1.1, it must be a knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Chapter 2, verse 11, that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and enables us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And must be, chapter 3, verse 8, insist that we be a people who are devoted to good works So A, declare the good news of the gospel, which necessarily means you must B, defend the truth of the gospel. Remember Titus 1.9, Paul said, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to do two things. He's got to do two things. I would say the church has to do two things. 
Number one, give instruction in sound doctrine. And number two, rebuke those who contradict it. So no surprise, Paul again moves from declaring sound doctrine, verse 8, to refuting those who contradicted, verses 9 to 11, both in refuting false teaching and rejecting false teachers. So he says in verse 9, look at verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Because that's what the false teachers want to talk about. So Titus, don't get sucked in and don't waste your time with things that are unprofitable and worthless. Notice how Paul's not messing around with these guys because he's clearly talking about church discipline, isn't he? Including the Matthew 18 structure of confrontation and of escalation. Follow the logic, verse 10, Paul says, as for a person who stirs up division, warn him once. Then warn him again, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that he's warped and sinful and that he's self-consumed, self-condemned. That's clearly church discipline. Just to make sure you're understanding the passage and not thinking Paul's being too hard on these guys in any way, recognize they're self-condemned. These are not upstanding Christians. No, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Chapter 1, verse 11 says they're upsetting whole families by teaching what is false. So people are going to hell as a result of what they're teaching and the way in which they're living. So they must be rejected. And in contrast, the the church should be gloriously different. Now, I realize as we close this letter, you might be tempted to just skip over these last few verses, right? That's what we tend to do in these things. Genealogies, we do this Christian flyover in our Bible reading, don't we? We're like, oh, sweet, a genealogy, Genesis chapter 32, check, I'm on to Genesis 33. Like, this is great. I think we do that at the end of letters as well. We do this flyover right? Look at these. We just think this is like travel plans or something. I mean, either Artemis or Tychicus will be coming. Great. When they come, Titus should do his very best to travel to Nicopolis. Wonderful. Zenos and Apollos are carrying the letter. That's great. Make sure they're liking it nothing. Will do. And then closing, everyone sends their love. Hello, goodbye. Hope to see you soon, right? You could think that none of this matters to you in particular. If you're tempted to read these verses like that, you'd be missing a ton. Because in light of all those details, Paul commands one thing. Verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. Do you see how that's right down the middle of Paul's main point in the book of Titus, that God raises up people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And here's a perfect example played out right in front of them. But I want you to grab a hold of the tone because it's so relational. Verse 12 says, do your best, Titus, to come to me. Verse 13, do your best to send Zenos the lawyer. And verse 14, I would suggest, do your best 
to help people learn to devote themselves to good works. You know what that makes me think of? Makes me think of the way that I speak to my children. Sweetheart, do your best. I love you and I'm for you and I ask one thing of you, that you do your best. Just do your best. It's not authoritarian. It's not patronizing. It's relational. Paul ends by saying, I love you and I care for you. I'm willing to do anything for you just to make sure you rightly understand the gospel, the glory of Christ's finished work on the cross to save you, to redeem you, to transform you, and to protect you until you make it all the way home to your eternal inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you. But until then, do your best. Do your best to live out the gospel. Which means, what does it mean to do your best to live out your gospel? It means that you're overwhelmed by God's grace, which motivates you and empowers you to be zealous for good works. Do you see how relational that is? So as we close, let me ask some questions about areas in your life where you might need to learn how to be devoted to good works. Starting with this, are you truly overwhelmed by what God has done specifically for you? Are you overwhelmed by it? Sending Jesus for your salvation, that he gave himself for you, to redeem you, to purchase you so that you might inherit the hope of eternal life, that you might be a child of God, a person for his own position. Are you overwhelmed by that? That's the heart of the gospel. That's what's going to motivate you to be a person who lives for the glory of God, being zealous for good works. So if that's not in place, if you're not overwhelmed by the gospel, then that's where you have to start. You have to start by being overwhelmed by God's grace from start to finish. That he saved you, past tense. That he's saving you, present tense that he promises to save you to the uttermost, the glory of that future reality, your eternal inheritance of being with him forever. If you think that somehow he saved you, but now I got it, I'm gonna do it. I'll make sure that I run and I get all the way home the glory. That's up to me. Then you're missing it. Do you understand that? Then he saved you, and now you're in control. If you think like that, you'll never be overwhelmed by the gospel. And I would say, you'll never be empowered to live for the glory of God. Because it hasn't captured your heart. If you think being zealous for good works is a burden, something you have to do, then I would suggest you're not captured by the gospel. And perhaps you've never been captured by the gospel and you're just working really hard to be a better person. You know, it's not a good getting better gospel in the Bible. It's a sinner's saved by grace gospel. Good getting better gospel is not 
the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's a works-based gospel. We're sinners saved by grace. First question, are you overwhelmed by God's grace? That he would save a wretch like you. And that he's your heavenly father who's constantly forgiving you, constantly encouraging you, and constantly saying those sweet words to you. My beloved child, do your best. That's not in place. You have to start there. But then let me ask, in what areas of your life do you need to be growing? Where do you need to learn to be devoted to good works? Is it your actions? Learning how to submit to rulers, to obey your authorities, to be obedient to the word of God? Maybe there's an area in your life where you know that you're being disobedient. Hear God calling you to repent to turn from your sin and to faithfully start walking in the slow but faithful path of righteousness and obedience? Or is it your speech? Maybe your struggle with gossip and slander, saying unkind things behind people's backs or sharing information that really isn't yours to share. Or maybe in one conversation, when you're around church people, you praise God, but then in another conversation around the people at work, you curse Him. Where do you need to grow in good and godly speech? Or maybe it's your attitude. That somehow you consistently forget that you've been saved by grace. So you're constantly judging the people around you. And if they don't match up to your standard, then you've got attitude. Or maybe you're just selfish. So you're constantly frustrated, angry, although you would never say angry. You would say irritated. That sounds better. Maybe you're just selfish. So you're constantly frustrated, irritated, and angry because things don't go your way. The exact opposite of what it looks like to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Wherever it is that you need to learn how to devote yourself to good works, I want you to know. You don't hear me say anything else this morning, dear believer. Hear me say this. Wherever it is that you need to grow in being devoted to good works, God is standing right next to you saying, Beloved child of mine, do your best. Just do your best. I love you and I'm for you. My son died for you. He saved you. He is saving you and he will save you to the uttermost. Here's what I ask of you. Do your best. Just do your best. May God give us the grace that we would be overwhelmed by the gospel and that we would do our best. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, I pray that you be at work. Salvation is a work of God. Sanctification is a work of God. So, Lord, we plead with you that you would be at work. 
that you would use the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God to impact the people of God. Lord, that is always our prayer. I pray that we would be a people who never get over the gospel, that we are captured by the reality that God saved us and that God is saving us and that God will save us to the uttermost. Lord, I pray that the joy of the Lord would be our strength and that we would be a people who do our very best to live for your glory, your honor, and your praise. Lord, do that good work, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.